Welcome to the One Life Maps podcast. Here's your host and co-author of Listen to My Life, maps for recognizing and responding to God in my story, Sharon Swing. Welcome everyone, this is Sharon Swing. And today we have with us once again, Daryl Smith. He's the author of a book that I really appreciate. It's called Faith Lies, Seven Incomplete Ideas That Hijack Faith and How to See Beyond Them. Welcome, Daryl. Hey, Sharon. Thank you for having me back. I'm glad to be with you. Absolutely. How do you like to be introduced today? Or, or what's what should our listeners know about you? Um, gosh, just that uh, I'm interested in having the conversations that you have on the One Life Maps podcast and um, helping in any way that I can, sharing, sharing my experiences um, and hearing others. Well, I think, well, I appreciate that. And I think the other pieces of, of what people need to know about you is that you um, are a pastor in a church and spend a lot of time uh, working with people uh, that are doing recovery group kinds of things, right? Yes, I do get, um, it's it's really one of the most fun things that I get to do is um, hang out at a place in San Antonio called Haven for Hope, which is our uh, homeless shelter and our recovery our city recovery um, center all in one. And so I've been going down there um, at least once a week for about the last five or six years and just learned so much from my brothers and sisters in recovery. And um, it's just a blessing to be with them. Oh, that's good. So, yeah. And from our last conversation, just majoring in on that conversation that, that um, we help inform one another's ways of thinking and, and, and broaden our perspectives of, of how different people think and how faith and God are integral to what's going on in people's lives and how, yeah, how it all comes together, right? Absolutely. I think we are all capable of living in um, to whatever system that we were handed um, or whatever tradition or ideas that we were handed until it doesn't work. And as soon as it doesn't work, we, we, we become um, increasingly aware of how much we need the conversation, how much we need to hear from other people, um, hear their stories, hear other journeys um, to try to make sense of our own. Yeah. So given that, I think that's a great introduction um, in some ways to be able to get into this book, Faith Lies, once again, seven incomplete ideas that hijack faith and how to see beyond them. And within here, there are, you, you list, of course, seven of these, but I want to focus in on line number two. Um, and this one is near and dear to my, um, to my heart and my story because of the fact that I've listened to enough people that don't have this one sorted out mm. and um, it, it deeply impacts people's relationship to God, to themselves and to others and how they see how the world works. Line number two in the book is, uh, is termed as God is angry and doesn't like me, especially when I sin. Yes. So you started out with talking about how that's a bad foundation. Why don't you say a few words about that? Yeah. I mean, at its core, when we reduce God to some kind of cosmic scorekeeper or Santa Claus that is keeping a naughty list or a nice list, um, or if we see 
our relationship with God is transactional in the sense that if we do good, then God will bless us. And if we don't do good, then God will smite us or curse us or withhold blessing or something like that. Um, that's a transaction. That's um, no different than you going to the grocery store and saying, I'm going to take all these groceries and in exchange, I'm going to give you this money. Um, the problem is that's not the God that we have in the Bible. The God that we have in the Bible repeatedly from the very opening pages of our story um, comes against transactional thinking. It says, I don't need you to do anything to be in relationship with me. In fact, I'm going to repeatedly show you how much I don't need you to do anything to earn this relationship. Um, but, but when we if we come at God with a transactional relationship or if we come at God with this idea that um, God's angry um, or God's keeping score, in the end, what we're left with is the idea that the thing that governs our relationship with God is our behavior. And that's a very stressful relate way to approach a relationship with the source of all things. Well, I also think that it's difficult when we see ourselves as, hey, I, I've, I've done my part, God. Why haven't you come through when something bad happens, right? Absolutely. Almost like, God, you owe me something because I've, I've earned something from you. Yeah, that's the... Go ahead. I'm sorry. That's the other... That's the flip side of that one, right? Yeah, that's the one of my favorite books in the Bible, which is Job. Um, you know, that story starts out saying how great Job is. So if we're doing this based on behavior... If our relationship with God is based on our behavior, well, Job's relationship with God should be the best. That's how the story begins. Um, and Job's main complaint as that story unfolds is, hey, God, you're not acting like you're supposed to act. Um, I'm doing my part. You're not doing your part. I should be getting blessed, and, and I'm not. Um, and that's the fundamental wrestling at the core of that story and it ends in a very, what I would call post-conventional place, which is God saying, you're right. I'm not acting like I'm supposed to act, but I'm God and you're not. And Job basically swallows that. <laughs> um, so it's a tough story. It doesn't really fit into our Western minds very well. But that that idea that if I'm putting my um, my part of the transaction in and not getting out what I should be, again, brings us back to that harsh reality that we have convinced ourselves that our relationship with God is based on our behavior. So you have a, a section in this chapter that's a convicted button pusher. What are you talking about there? <laughs> So, uh, so the story is when I was a kid, I think I was about five or six years old and I had an older sister. I still do. Um, I actually get to work with my older sister. Um, we we're both pastors at the same church, but um, she was three or four years older than me. And my mother um, had taken us to the hotel pool one day. We were on a, on a vacation and um, my mother was reading a book and not paying attention to us. So we wandered off to where the vending machines were and um, found out that the vending machine that held the candy uh, didn't, it, something was wrong with it. So anytime we pushed the button, the candy came out, even though we weren't putting money in. Um, so very quickly, a six-year-old and a nine-year-old emptied the entire vending machine into <laughs> hotel towels 
uh, that we just loaded up with candy. And I somehow we got it back into the room. And it was one of those adjoining rooms where my parents' room was on one side. And my sister and I spread all our candy on, on the beds in our room. And then when my mom happened by the the opening there and saw what was going on, it all, you know, all hell broke loose. And from there, what happened when my dad got uh, back to the hotel from his uh, meetings, um, we were told, you know, just wait till your father finds out, which just gave us that foreboding sense of terror um, that it was all going to come to an end. And my dad comes in and I'll never forget this. He says, pack up the candy. And uh, we're going down to the front desk to tell the hotel manager what you've done and ask them to call the police, which shocked me um, at, on one in one sense. But also, I kind of at that age always knew that there was probably going to be a line out there somewhere that if I crossed, my parents were going to be done with me. I just didn't think I had already reached it at age six. But um, it seemed like I had. We went downstairs. We put the towels full of candy on the front desk and confessed to the the woman behind the desk and told her she should call the police because we were thieves, which was what our father instructed us to do. Um, and she was laughing, um, of course. And that's when I realized, okay, this was the exercise that my dad was bringing me through to teach me a lesson but um, nobody called the cops. We didn't. We didn't go to jail. Um, they took the candy back, and I learned a, a lesson. But at the time, one of the lessons that I learned was something that wasn't helpful. And this was not my parents' intention, of course. My parents' intention was just to connect consequences to actions. But at the time, I thought I had done that. It was wrong for me to push the button on a machine that spits out candy. No one could help me understand at six that for a six-year-old to push a button, first off, any button is normal. I mean, we all know any six-year-old in the presence of any button, that button's going to get pushed. Now, if I add to that, that button spits out candy. There's no six-year-old on the planet that can be asked to stand up to that and not keep pushing the button. Um, so it wasn't that I didn't have the strength to stand up to the sin of stealing. It was just my parents helping me uh, connect consequences to actions. Um, but I had to struggle with that a little bit. And it's definitely how I saw my relationship with God for a long time as well, that my behavior was going to dictate whether or not I was okay with God and that I needed to be um, able to stand up to whatever button I was tempted to push in my life in order to make God like me. Well, I just, I love your story there because of the fact that all of us are little theologians, that we're trying to figure out how the world works, who we are in it, who God is. We're, we're just, we're, we're wired to do that. And we'll take any circumstance to 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 feed into our theological basis of understanding absolutely. even at six years old absolutely it, it's we're always uh there's a friend of mine named jim harrington who uh, runs a ministry called faith walking and he says we are meaning making machines so we are always running around assigning meaning thing meaning to things that as soon as we are able to 
Oh, and then, yeah, then we continue to do that in our marriages, for example. <laughs> oh, no, no doubt. We're pretty darn good at that stuff. Absolutely. So I love the I love the title of the next session when you say Jesus friend of button pushers. So say say a little bit more about about uh, how yeah just how God used that kind of thing. Sure. The I think at the time when I was going through this, I was so endeared to the woman behind the counter um, at the hotel because she did laugh and because she didn't. Um, get mad at us and she didn't condemn us and she didn't call the police. And I saw her as a foil, like she ruined my dad's plans that my dad's plan was for me to end up in jail that night. And she was just too cool to let that happen. Um, now, of course it wasn't my dad's plan for me to end up in jail. Um, she was in on this uh, lesson with my dad, but I think that, picture helps me define how I saw my relationship with God, the divine parent, um, and, and Jesus for the longest time that God, the divine parent, um, was disappointed in me just as a baseline that that's where we started that before anything else, this God, the divine parent was disappointed in me, angry at me. I wasn't good enough. And that, that hotel clerk, who took pity on me, laughed, um, was kind to me, was like Jesus. And so it was this aspect of Jesus stands between me and the angry God that wants to send me to jail or that at least knows I deserve jail. Um, and so it makes, you, it makes you feel really good about Jesus. Jesus is your friend. Jesus is your brother. Jesus has your back. Jesus laid it all on the line for you. And all of those things are true. Um, but it doesn't draw you really close to the divine parent. Um, it makes you think the one that sent Jesus doesn't feel the same way about you that Jesus does. Well, you start out this chapter with a, with a quote from Jonathan Edwards. Yes. And his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an angry God. Yes. It's a tough, tough sermon, different time. It's a different point in time, yet there are ripple effects of that particular sermon and that way of thinking that go back way before that. But this comes from a school, a school of thought about, you know, some people who looked at the Bible through particular lenses and um, created a way of thinking that they would base their preaching and teaching on that um, is not the only way that people have thought about this over time. But there are other schools of thought that have been around for thousands of years. Yes. About this kind of thing. But this, this particular quote at the beginning of this chapter um, from Jonathan Edwards says, the God that holds you over the pit of hell much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath toward you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. Yeah, it kind of warms your heart, doesn't it? 
Okay. So basically that's the, you're, you're, you're putting that quote in there because you, you want to kind of take this idea to an extreme, like God is angry with me and he doesn't really like me and, and all because of the fact that we need to paint that contrast, but we need to see the absurdity of this. But some people don't see that as absurd because there have been people in their life. I, I remember I, I used to get my hair cut a long time ago by somebody who, who, who had a little salon in their basement and her little, probably two and a half year old was playing in the background there and was walking up the basement steps, which were carpeted and the kid tripped and fell. Mm. And, and she said something to him to the effect of, because he had just been bad. He had just done something that he wasn't supposed to do. See, God is angry with you. That was your punishment. Yeah. And I thought to myself, and my heart just sunk. But there were pieces of my background and what I had been handed that I hadn't sorted out yet at that point in time either. But that story still comes to mind when I read this. It's like it was a minor indiscretion that this kid did. I, he, he was like two and a half and he got into, you know, he picked something up that he shouldn't have, right? Yes. <laughs> and, yeah. and which two-year-olds do, right? And then this minor little trip up the stairs, but he, you know, it upset him and he hurt himself just a little bit for temp temporarily anyway, something hurt, to have his mom tell him that that had something to do with what God thinks about what he just did. Yeah, there's there's a lot. We we don't realize it in in statements like that how much theological work um we're asserting. Um now I would I would argue we're not asserting it very well. Um but not only does that statement um hold the idea that it's our behavior that governs our relationship with God. Um as you know, it was the the boy's misbehavior that caused him that caused God to make him trip or whatever, but it also com comes with the idea that God will intervene into time and space to trip you, but not to stop the Holocaust. I mean, there's just, it's just a, an idea that we don't give the proper thought. Um, but that kind of, that God that would intervene in time and space to do that, but not to save your aunt from cancer. Um, is not a God that people are going to want to be in relationship with. Well, not just not want to be, but sometimes feel like they have to be in relationship with it because that's the only God they've been offered. Yes, sadly, uh, for the, for the last three or four hundred years, that's been a a loud voice of the God God that we um, describe and offer. So, theologically speaking, we're we're dealing with a a theology of original sin here, okay. which has gotten a lot of traction here Yes, um, in different circles. And um, I realized that there's a long history behind this particular thing. But as I listen to people's story, this is such a, a primary roadblock to people being able to give, I'm sorry, to receive God's love and to give it, and also to receive love from other people and give it. Yes. And that's one of the primary 
things that happens when we're in a healthy relationship with God and our spiritual life is in good order is we can receive love and we can give love. We can breathe it in and we can breathe it back out again. Yes. And so I get so amped up about this because of the fact that it's so prevalent. I remember I remember Sybil Towner and I, um, the co-author of the Listen to My Life Materials, and, and I, we were doing a weekend um, retreat for a church. And we had a bunch of people in the room that as we were listening to their various different comments along the way, realized that there was this prevalence of... Um, God doesn't like me. He 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 doesn't like me very much, but he has to love me. It's right. Like, that's his, that's his duty. Right. <laughs> but he doesn't really like me very much. And something really, I had one of those really really profound moments. Um, the the morning of the second day that we were at the retreat. So I'm praying for the day. I'm praying for the participants. I'm praying for Sybil and I to be able to express what it is that that God wants us to make sure they know. If they if if he needs a mouthpiece to say it out loud through a human, what do you want from us? You know, what do you want to 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 say, Lord? What do you want us to to convey? And um I'm I'm in the I'm in the bathroom and I'm drying my hair. And I'm having this conversation with God and I'm praying and 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 I'm like, God, just please Tell these people, show them, help them to feel to the core of their being how much you love them. And I hear this in my spirit. I hear this this distinct. You know, I don't I don't get audible <laughs> connections with God, sure. but sometimes He speaks to my spirit so loudly, <laughs> right? Um, that. It, it just shakes me and stops me in my tracks. And, and he, he said, well, what about you? Mm. Do you know that I love you? <laughs> and it just, I, I stopped what I was doing and tears just started flowing down my face. I just finished my makeup, of course. And <laughs> I, in, in this retreat was in this really nice hotel with a big fluffy, you know, a nice bed with big fluffy comforters and pillows and, and everything else. And I, and I walked out into the bedroom portion and just kind of fell back into the, into, into the fluffiness of the, of the bed and just like, Oh my God, please let me just soak this in. I need this because I want to receive everything you've got for me. So I have something to give. Yes. Yeah. And I, and I'm, I'm, I lay, I, you know, I, I hit the bed and not, Two seconds later, the fire alarm goes off. Hmm. I'm having this moment with God. The fire alarm goes off. And I'm like, really? Okay. <laughs> this is going to get interrupted? <laughs> so long story short, I, I'm ignoring it. I'm thinking to myself, it's a false alarm, I'm sure, you know, whatever else. And then not, and I'm trying to ignore the fire alarm. I put, I put, I put a, a pillow over my ears, you know. <laughs> Just trying to like regain that connection with God. I'm like, okay, God, you know, I, I want to receive more of this. Yeah. And and uh, then I start hearing this guy coming down the hallway, knocking on every door saying, I'm sorry, we have to evacuate. I'm thinking about it. it'll stop before he gets down the hall as far as me. I'm all the way toward the end. 
And, uh, and sure enough, he keeps coming, coming, coming. So finally he's at my door and, and I'm thinking about it and I'm just like, oh, it would just be, if Satan is active in a, in a particular way, this would be what the, he would do, you know, <laughs> just interrupt a moment like that. Right. <laughs> so I'm angry. <laughs> and I open the door and here is this, this, this very kind looking young man who says, I'm so sorry, but we're going to have to evacuate. And I look down and, and he's got a name tag on and his name tag is Emmanuel. Oh, wow. <laughs> the, the word meaning God with us. Yes. And I'm like, okay, no matter what happens, God's with me. And I, I laughed out loud. And I saw him a couple more times over the weekend, you know, because he was doing different different tasks around the hotel. And I'd say, hello, Emmanuel. And I would just smile. It was just like, oh, for goodness sake, are you kidding me? <laughs> That's a great and, story. Yeah. And, and so I went back into the workshop and I and and somebody said something else that was you know, in that vein of God may love me, but he doesn't really like me hmm. kind of thought you know, was, was interwoven in this whole thing. And I said, you know, I got to tell you what happened to me this morning. <laughs> I told him this story. Yeah. I'm like, you need to understand that no matter what you have come to believe or how you have come to believe it, that the God of the Bible read it as a love letter to you. Yes. Yes. Um, First and foremost. And, and then I remember not too long after that reading a book, it was actually um, a listening heart by um, brother David uh, Stindle rest. And in there, in the introduction, he uses the phrase original blessing. Yeah. And that sent me on a whole track of being able to, to start to, un, to, to label what I was sensing was going on with so many people that there was another viewpoint here that could be explored. Absolutely. Um, and that phrase, original blessing, um, Danielle Schroyer has written a book called Original Blessing um, that deals with that. That's something that this idea that we have lost touch with largely, in, especially in American Protestantism, um, or just Western Christianity, but it's never been completely detached from the Christian faith. It's it's ideas that our our Jewish brothers and sisters hold. Um, it's ideas that the Eastern Orthodox Church holds, and the and the Celtic Church uh, hold, and has and have held for thousands of years. So, although our journey to America uh, with our Puritan forebears has colored the last three four hundred years for us. Um, one way there are other ways to see this story yeah and I, I i wrote in the in the margins of where this where i first saw this phrase original blessing um it says a spirituality based on original blessing as opposed to one fixated on original sin was was the phrase has been making promise promising noises lately and I thought to myself, I hope that grows, right? I hope it comes to a crescendo. And then I wrote in the in the margin here, um, spirituality based on original blessing does not deny original sin. But if 
it recognizes that the blessing is in fact our origin. It predates the sin. Moreover, blessing is how the story ends for all who have attuned themselves with God the Father through Jesus and have learned to do so through the tutelage of the Holy Spirit. Mm. Yeah. And just this this idea that we're not denying that we're sinners. I mean, everybody hopefully realizes that that's the case, right? God would hope. But our identity is a blessing. Yes. Original blessing. So what difference does that make in your life as you sorted out this lie in your story? Well, a couple of things began to awaken for me. Uh, one was that there, is, there are entire traditions with millions of Christians um, for over a thousand years, uh, depending on how you want to look at this, who, when they talk about Jesus and the cross, don't utter the phrase, Jesus died for my sins. That that's not how they approach the miracle of the crucifixion and resurrection, which then leads to, led to further investigation. And I mentioned Daniel Stroyer's book, Original Blessing. I would also mention Tony Jones' book, Did God Kill Jesus?, which is an, an amazing book that outlines how we, as the Christian faithful, have talked about the cross for the last 2,000 years, and we haven't always talked about it one way. So just coming face to face with that reality caused me to think, well, I didn't know there was more than one way to look at this. And once you start discovering the ways that these ideas came into our thoughts and got into our doctrine, um, then you have to be really honest about whether or not they're helpful and what their impact is. And I I have to say I'm, I'm unabashedly not a fan of original sin. I think it is doing great damage and has done great damage in our faith and in our culture and society. Um, and I understand that that's going to ruffle people's feathers. So I don't ever say it has, it needs to be thrown out. That's, that's not helpful to people who are on the journey. Um, but I do, I will say it needs to be examined um, and we need to be critically honest about where it came from and how we got it so that we can properly understand it. Because there are, there are so many ripple effects to this particular idea. Yes. And, and I think that like the quote from Jonathan Edwards, um, when it, when God is characterized as excessively angry and bitter toward us, um, it's really hard to receive love from God, which is what we need most. Because if we can't receive love from God, the chances of us being able to give love are slim to none. Very good point. And in addition to that, we, we have to realize that sometimes at different points in history, people have used the Bible to get people to behave a certain way. Absolutely. Still are. Right. And, or believe a certain thing or to, um, or to just align themselves. So, because there's, there's you, there, many times there's been a, so that <laughs> after the fact, 
you know, so you need to behave this way so that society will turn out this way, you know, or what right. basic, you know, it, and there's been, there's been people who have used this kind of, kind of thing to, to perpetuate other pieces of lies that have to do with uh, one race dominating another or, you know, just un unbelievable things um, that have come out of this kind of fear-based idea that they use to control somehow or another. They use to, they use to control people in a way that God never intended. They're leveraging some things here. And that's what happens when we elevate certain pieces of scripture over another and we don't look at the whole of what is God saying across time in his interactions with his people over time and how do you hold some of these some of these beautiful pieces of scripture that talk about god's love toward us yes yeah you, it's like it it kind of gives you a picture of a schizophrenic god doesn't oh it? that's so well put that's a perfect uh word to describe what we're up against you know if we're if we are familiar with the Christian scriptures, then we should be familiar with the idea that the primary metaphor that we get on how we should relate to God in those scriptures is as a parent. Um, that the scriptures are full of ideas and stories and sayings that invite us to consider God as father, God as mother, that we are a child to God's parent. So, so if we could just come back to the idea that we are um, invited to receive, to understand, to relate to God as a loving parent, and that loving parents have, even in, even in our human experiences, loving parents have seemingly endless mercy and forgiveness and grace for their kids' mistakes. And we do that, but we don't allow God the same grace. We see that in ourselves, but we don't see that grace in God. And that's, that's a tragic irony that we have attached to God different behavior than we attach and ex expect of ourselves. Um, Father and Greg Boyle. Society expects of, of people. Oh, and absolutely. We people in jail that have abused children. Yes. Yes. That's a child right. abuse is a good way to, to frame that. I, I, I don't want to claim that people smarter than I have said that before, but that, that that's some kind of cosmic child, child abuser is what we reduce God to if we, well, if we really are the children of God. So these are things that are not sorted out easily. No. These, these ideas are, are something that you need to be able to to put in the back of your mind. And I mean, right now there's some people who, who might be listening who are thinking, oh my gosh, this is, this is heresy. This is heresy. <laughs> and, and I got to check out now. Yes. And, but here we are talking about who our picture of God is. And so there's some things that are, that are challenging about that, that I have to admit, I'm still sorting out. Yes. And I think I don't I don't really think I'll ever be done sorting out my picture of who God is. But what I do know from my personal experience, like the story I told earlier, the God that that intervenes in my life and when I have 
these experiences with with God that are like what that is. It's like, wait a minute, he 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 really desires for me to receive his love. Yes. And do you believe that God wants you to receive his love? Yeah, and, and start there. Just start there and open yourself up to be able to receive his love. And and there are some ideas that get in the way of being able to receive God's love that we have to wrestle with over time. And there are different pieces of theology, different schools of thought over the history of, of Christendom that have come to different conclusions about these things. Yes. And that it and and so it's not like we're going to have an easy row of trying to of, of trying to sort all those things out but we have to realize that we have been handed some ideas and we probably need to sort through and figure out what we want to take with us and what we want to leave behind on those things and there's a lot of good to take with us yes yeah there is I've said this so often. I think when we all get when we get to when we get to 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 heaven, we're all going to be surprised just in a lot a lot of different ways. Yes. Yeah. Um, I just don't know that that I you know the the tradition I grew up in put a lot of weight into um, right theology and right ways of thinking, mm-hmm. and really elevated that over experiencing God in a yes. lot of ways. Yeah. Um, so the ways of experiencing God through spiritual practices and, and just, you know, having, you know, so I'm drying my hair and I'm, and I'm talking to God about what I want, we're going to do that day. (laughs) And, and all of a sudden this thing happens to me where I sense God saying, well, what about you? Do you believe that I love you? Right. And just this overwhelming wash of, of, of energy through my body you know it's like okay what do i do with that (laughs) yes you know that that is a hallmark moment in my in my faith journey yes and who do you know god to be and what are what pieces of this of of these of these things that we have experienced and the things we've learned we are all going to elevate one thing over another. Absolutely. Know. So which things are we going to, to give more attention to, weight to, remembrance to? Because I think we all have, you know, just oh, a mixed bag to sort through. Absolutely. And our experience, yeah, our experience is... Need, need to be not only validated, but taken seriously for the weight that they carry. Um, Father Richard Rohr talks about, uh, he, he asks, invites us to picture a tricycle and says the two rear wheels of the tricycle are scripture and tradition. Um, and they're important, you know, for no other reason than they keep your, your butt off the ground. Um, they hold you up. But the front wheel of that tricycle is experience. And if you think about a tricycle, the front wheel is where the pedals are. So it's the thing that makes it go. And the front wheel is also where the steering is. And yes, we could 
push this metaphor into really insane ed- to its insane edges and talk about how the spokes that make up the front wheel can be things like community and the spiritual disciplines and worship or anything you know that makes up that that wheel of experience but our experiences are are all we have to make sense of our relationship with the source of all things with God so we have to bring that to the table and it doesn't mean our experience um, gets to govern the thing unadulterated. That's what the scriptures for. That's what the traditions for. That's what communities for. It, it's a pretty lousy unicycle. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So um, experiences is, is huge, and I, I also understand that. You know, when when you and I are talking about a divine parent, and that that's the primary metaphor we're offered in the scriptures. Well, that that works really well for me. I have great parents, but that's not the case for everyone. Mm-hmm. So the primary metaphor sometimes for people is actually an obstacle. So if you have, if you can't, if you have no experience of a loving parent in your life, then for me to come to you with a God that's a loving parent, it's going to take some more work. It's going to take some more time to understand that. Right. And not everybody's going to come, come to the same kind of conclusion that you have. Absolutely. And I'm still sorting some of this out. And, but yet I, I think it's important that we're talking about this because of the fact that even though some people would say we're in dangerous waters and, 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 and everything in the midst of this conversation, um, I think it's happening anyway, inside of a lot of people. Yes. Yes. It's happening, but they don't know how to name it and they don't know where to have a safe conversation about it, about sorting out their picture of who God is. And I mean, it. I just did a conver- I just had a conversation with uh, with another person on on the um, for the podcast that we were talking about a particular book that starts with the same quote that you use yes. at the beginning of yours, which is a quote from from Tozer, and yep. I'm, I'm, you can hear me flipping through the real pages of a real book. <laughs> yeah, here we go. Um, it says. Oh, goodness. Um, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us, as no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Yeah. I mean, this is, these are weighty questions in this, in this idea of original sin or original blessing, just kind of take us right there. Absolutely. And, and so what we do with listen to my life is, is, is that's kind of what happens in the midst of people mapping their life story. And we're in, you know, on the, my life story map, we have this, this line at the bottom is noticing God, you know, the different kinds of questions you've had about God or the pictures of God that you have held over time. Those don't remain static over the lifetime of over anyone's lifetime, it seems, from my experience of listening to people anyway. Right. And so to recognize that that is what is going on, we are comparing our theology to our experience and our experience to our theology constantly. Exactly. This is what life is. And when we encounter the stories of people in scripture, we're talking so often about stories who are radic- are having these encounters 
with God that are changing their perspective of who he is. Yes. yes. And Jesus keeps having those conversations with people <laughs> all throughout the gospels. Yes. In these, in these very interesting ways, you know, basically he just kind of keeps confronting. You're not, I'm not who you think I am. Yes. And it's helpful for us to remember in what you're, what you're inviting us to see that earlier when you mentioned Jonathan Edwards, or if we were to mention St. Augustine, who, you know, originally wrote the doctrine of original sin in the fourth century, these people aren't villains. These people aren't idiots in our past. These, these just like us, just like you just described, were people trying to make sense of their relationship with the, the, the divine through their experiences and doing the best that they could. And the problem is not that they had ideas or that they had incomplete ideas. The problem is what we've, what we have done and what we do with their ideas. Um, I heard a rabbi um, that was teaching on how Judaism uh, in the 18th century, how Judaism in Europe began to split. And he was describing, uh, quoting another rabbi, I believe Rabbi Hirsch, who was talking about the difference between reform Judaism and, and conservative or traditional Judaism and Orthodox Judaism. And this, this rabbi was a member of the traditional Judaism. And he looks at reform and he uses the metaphor of a chessboard. And he says, well, with the reform Jews, they say there's no rules. So their chessboard is just a mess and every piece can move in any direction. There's no rules, there's no structure. And as a, he's describing his own tradition, the, the conservative Judaism, and he says, we look at the chessboard and say, there is structure, there are rules, the chess pieces do move in certain ways, but as they move, there's an infinite number of possibilities and there's different gambits and strategies that can unfold in the chess match and you never look at the same chessboard twice and you, it continues to develop. And then he describes the Orthodox Jews and he says what they did was they took a glass bowl and put it over the chessboard in the 18th century and froze it in time. Now, I don't tell that story to, to comment on Judaism. That is not an area of which I would be a good scholar to comment upon. But I do recognize in that metaphor that in my life, parts of my faith tradition who look at the chessboard and say there's no structure, there's no rules, there's no order. And I look also at parts of my faith tradition that have placed glass bowls over ideas like original sin and frozen them in time. And in the case of original sin, that's an idea that came into being in the fourth century, didn't really gain traction or any kind of following until the 10th century or after, um, and really didn't get popular until our Puritan forebears grabbed it and used it to build this country upon. Um, about 400 years ago. And in each of those cases, I see a glass bowl over an idea that's meant to be, you know, examined, not frozen in time. And if we put it under a glass bowl and then build entire denominations and institutions on it, institutions that depend on, you know, our ability to sustain them with fundraising, 
it becomes a very sticky thing to undo. And I think that that's a very rough description of where we find ourselves today. Well, and it's not just in this particular piece of, of theology, but in some, a lot of others as well. If people disagree with us as Christians, we often, you know, we, we have a really quick filter of who's in and who's out. Yes. And um, just like, but Jesus has a lot to say to people that, that are thinking about who's in and who's out too, um, in his interactions with um, with the Pharisees and the and the religious people of his day as well. But it's there is this this we have this defense that we that we that we mount, and there are certain things that I will stand on, and I will I I I, I actually will defend this idea that God is love. And I, God, I'll defend it with you. Yeah, I will defend that one. And that looks so different to different people in terms of, of, of what that, how that plays itself out in their lives. But if we reject the idea that God is love, what are the chances that we're going to become loving people? Very well said. So, well, this has been an interesting one, and I realize we're 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 to the end of our time here. But oh my goodness, I think we're going to get some comments on this one. <laughs> uh, I don't mean to make light of that, and if any of this has stirred up anyone, please um, just know that the, the intention is not to dismiss or belittle, um, but to invite to further investigation and journey. Yeah, because I mean, in a lot of places, and I mean. Parts of, of, of my story, I have I have been in religious communities where um, where conversations like this would would be so disallowed. Yes. And but yet they're happening in people's minds anyway. And so to be gracious with yourself and please to be gracious with us and others that yes. are sorting things out. I mean, I've all, I've I've heard a lot of people say, "Well, I wrote that book too early," <laughs> you know, like people who have actually authored books and they don't agree with them any longer, right? After time, and um, I hope that my that my faith continues to um, to change and evolve, and because of the experiences I have with God over time and how I see God work and how the world works, but I still have a whole, I, I'm going to have a whole boatload of questions for God when I, you know, yeah. hopefully when I, 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 I don't know exactly what heaven looks like, but I really hope I, we get to have good conversations and say, no, wait, 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 what about this? Yeah. I think that's a fair expectation. I, like I hope it's one big midrash. Hey, I, it makes sense to me. Uh, one big good conversation about sorting it all out. Like, wait, what? And, but I have a feeling a lot of our questions will be made irrelevant in the in the light of God's love. Absolutely right. In the in the full relationship, it, a lot of that will fade away. Mm -hmm. Well, this has been Daryl Smith. He is the author of the book Faith Lies: Seven Incomplete Ideas That Hijack Faith and How to See Beyond Them. This book. You may not agree with all of it. I'm not sure I do, but yet this makes me think and it makes me consider and it helps me to understand different stories I have been told, different stories that I've told myself, 
different stories that other people have been told and different things that people have experienced over time. But what I do realize and what I value so highly with Listen to My Life is, is, is people sorting out their stories. And no one can do that for you. You have to do that for yourself. There's no one else who's going to sort out your story and help you to, and, and, and decide for you what to take with you and what to leave behind. There are people who can help you to do that. But go ahead and be courageous askers of questions and enter into conversations with God in a way that allow him to get a word in edgewise and to be open to, to, to the still small voice and his, his just call of love for your life and consider this idea that if you have held on to original sin as a way of thinking that there might be something different that God wants to show you, ask him if there is, if you're questioning that and see what happens over the next, over the next stretch of time. Be diligent in asking him if original blessing might be more true to his intention and see what happens. So Daryl Smith, thank you so much for being with me again and entering into this conversation. It, Absolutely. It was, thank uh, you for having me. I, I really enjoy talking to you, Sharon. Well, um, I tell you, <laughs> it was good last time. I, I hope this one, uh, this one is, is well listened to and, uh, and well considered in any case. It's an invitation to a journey, right? Absolutely. Oh, many blessings, my friend. Take care. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Bye-bye. Have you thought, I don't know myself anymore? Have you wondered, is there something more? Are you at a crossroads in life and asking, which way will lead me toward expressing more of who I am made to be? Are you looking for a way to understand the restlessness you feel inside? Are you seeking a deeper spiritual life and desire to rediscover who you are through God's eyes? If you've wondered any of these things before, you're ready for the life mapping experience of Listen to My Life. Go to onelifemaps.com to purchase your portfolio of visual life maps. While you're there, check out our upcoming virtual coaching groups, live workshops, and options for you to facilitate the Listen to My Life experience with others. That's onelifemaps.com. O-N-E-L-I-F-E-M-A-P-S.com.